verses 19 through 22. Psalm 106, verses 19 through 22. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of the Lord for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Now if you'll look in the book of Romans, chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now if you'll look in the book of Romans again, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is... Let me read that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated, if you will, join me in a time of prayer. Father God, we uh, thank You for this time that we can gather together, Father. God, we thank You that You have opened to us Your Word, Father, and Your light by which we may live. God, I thank you for seeing faces like the Prisbles after long journey, Father, um, the Hayes Camps, God, Nick and Brittany, uh, Iris and Richie, Father. We just thank you, God, that you have brought us together for a sweet reunion this week as we worship you. And we pray, Lord, that you'll speak to each of our hearts as only you can do. So, Father, now break our hearts of stone. Soften us, Father. God, I pray that our uh, mindset about who we are will be broken based on the truth and revelation of your word. Change us in this time. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, just play pretend with me for just a moment. Imagine you recently attended the wedding of some very dear friends, a match made in heaven as you have so often believed their relationship to be. The wedding was beautiful you remember the quaint little church, the cheerful place settings, the gorgeous flowers, the warm rays of sunlight streaming in through the stained glass windows. Birds were chirping happily outside. Friends were embracing each other in a sweet reunion. Everything seemed absolutely perfect. You watched as the bridegroom beamed majestically at the front of the chapel as his beautiful bride walked down the aisle. You remember the steady streams of happy tears 
as they recited their vows and proclaimed their love for each other. You cheered with the rest of the throng as the couple sealed their vows with a kiss and were pronounced husband and wife. You ate your heart's fill of delicious cakes and desserts as as a visible reminder of the sweetness and goodness you had just witnessed that day. That was a little over a month or two two ago. And now you sit shocked because of the phone call that you've just received. The once happy couple is getting a divorce. Less than two months after this beautiful wedding day, the bride was caught in a scandalous affair with one of her former lovers, an unloving and uncaring playboy. The husband is heartbroken, angry, and bent on getting a divorce. And you think to yourself, what a tragedy. She exchanged all the sweetness, the goodness, and the beauty for bitterness, brokenness, and ugliness. She traded her happy ever after for a one-night stand. Tears that were once shed because of the overwhelming visions of beauty and glory and majesty are now flowing because of sorrow. Essentially, the short, this short story describes Israel's relationship with their God in Exodus. Israel had a marriage with God in Exodus chapter 23 20 through 24, where there's this beautiful covenant being made, vows are being recited, the covenant sealed with blood. God is gracious and welcomes them in into a relationship. He promises them an eternal relationship with Him and blessing, goodness. They even got to eat a covenant meal together at the top of the mountain when Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders and Moses went up on top and they ate and drank and beheld God. After the covenant ceremony, Moses went up to receive the plans for the tabernacle so that this could be their eternal future, so that from then on out, they could experience the overwhelming warmth of God's presence and goodness and glory. He was gone no more than 40 days. And in the midst of 40 days, we find Israel committing spiritual adultery, entering into an illicit affair with some playboy idol that doesn't care about her, that doesn't love her, a former lover from Egypt who did nothing for her. In this scandalous act, and in this scandalous moment, Israel exchanges the glory of God for a lesser glory, something that's not glorious at all. They exchange the creator of the universe, all of his love and all of his goodness for something that was made by their own two hands. Exodus 32 if you were to ask me what is one of the, one of the, not the most, but what is one of the most important scriptures in the Old Testament, I think Exodus 32 is one of those. It goes on, on the same shelf at Genesis 3. Because Exodus 32, it, it tells us a story about how Israel is prone to wander from God. But it also serves as an illustration in the way that we have wandered from God. 
This isn't just a story about how Israel turned away. The golden calf story is everyone's story. We all have done what Israel does at the foot of Mount Sinai. That being said, the main idea found in Exodus 32 is simply this. We have all given our hearts over to idols. And therefore, we all need a perfect mediator who can stand between us and the wrath of God. Every single one of us are idolaters, and every single one of us are in need of a perfect mediator. Now, we're going to talk about three specific things. We're going to look at Israel's great exchange and how they created an idol and exchanged God for this idol. We're going to look at Moses' mediation. We're going to see all the pregnant themes in Moses' mediation. There's something there and things there that I think that some of us, having read this story for years, have missed And that's going to serve as a platform to talk about our more perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. So let's look first at the great exchange. While looking at Israel's fall into sin, the nature of idolatry surfaces. Namely, I think we see three things. Number one, we see idolatry takes what belongs to God. Number two, it calls the heart's devotion away from God. And number three, it demands for an exchange. So let's look at that first one. Idolatry always seeks to take what is God's. Whether it's God's people's trust, His people's thankfulness, His people's worship, His people's sense of security, whatever it is that belongs to God, idolatry seeks to take it away. We see all three of these things at play play in Israel's making of an idol. First, The whole root and motivation for building an idol was born out of their perceived need for some kind of immediate security and satisfaction. Verse 1 says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Notice specifically when they wanted to make an idol. It was when Moses delayed. Perhaps they felt vulnerable. We're just like sitting ducks here at Sinai. Maybe they felt insecure by Moses' delay. How will they know that manna will keep coming and water will keep coming? Maybe they're impatient for satisfaction. God has given a promise of a promised land. They're not there yet. We're ready to get there now. Why the delay, God? Let's get moving. If Moses is going to delay, let's make a God who will go before us and let's keep going. My friends, idolatry is always on the hills of a dissatisfaction with God's timing. When we begin to say things like, why is God delaying? It doesn't mean that we are idolaters. It just means that idolatry is not far behind. When we want that immediate satisfaction, when we want that immediate sense of security, when we want that immediate blessing right now, beware because there, there is something right on the hills beckoning us, tempting us, wanting us to come astray from the one who can give security, from the one who can give satisfaction. Sometimes we feel insecure by our empty bank account. And so we feel like we have to seek our own security by overworking. And neglecting our God and our families. Sometimes we feel dissatisfied with our marriage. The pleasure just isn't coming fast enough. 
We just don't feel like we're, we're reaching the depths of the relationship the way that we should. So we begin to seek out our own alternatives. The promise of marriage maybe hasn't, hasn't given you all the benefits that you thought it would. And so you begin to seek other substitutes to the displeasure of God and to the sorrow of your wife or your husband. Sometimes we grow weary and tired of waiting on God's promises for joy and blessing. So we turn to other things. Some of us, we turn to alcoholism. Some of us turn to drugs. Some of us turn to the TV and veg out, hoping that we can get some kind of sense of immediate pleasure now, immediate satisfaction now. It's in that desire and that perceived need for immediate that idolatry and rebellion is not far behind. Second, Their idolatry came by forgetting who God is and what God has done. As subtle as it may be, notice that the, notice the way Israel described their exodus. As for this man Moses, the man that God used and used wonderful signs and amazing majestic uh, uh, miracles to bring us out, we don't know what's happened to him. Is that what they say? No. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. Who did they credit for their redemption? It was a man, right? You hear nothing about God. You don't hear anything about Yahweh. You don't hear anything about this great God who has moved heaven and earth, turned water into blood and sent clouds of locusts and sent his own angel as a Passover angel. There's no, there's no description of the Red Sea miracle. It's simply Moses, this man, who brought us up. We don't know where he's at. Again, we can relate, relate to this. It's as we forget who God is and what God has done that we begin to seek out our own idols. Going back to that empty bank account where we're seeking for some kind of security, how often do we fail to remember that it is God who is our security? It is God who is our refuge. It is God who is our provider. How many times do we t- try to take matters into our own hands? We create some kind of idol in, in place. It, it, how many times do we forget that God is the source of pleasure and satisfaction? If we had nothing else, we have everything with God. Anytime we believe that we need something else in addition to God, that is idolatry. And it is bound to make you forget who God is and what God has done. They don't speak about their God. They speak about this man. And if only this man were here, then we wouldn't be talking about making idols. But here's the thing. It's the moments of this spiritual amnesia that build the cornerstones of our idol factories. The house of idolatry is built on the foundation of a heart that forgets God. I think that's important for us to remember. I think it's so relevant to our lives. Every single problem we're going through. How many times do we go back to the Redeemer? Every single situation that we go through, how many times do we forget that it is not up to men, it is not up to us, it is not up to our hard work, but it is up to a God who fights for us? Third, 
Israel's idolatry fundamentally was misplaced affection and worship. That is, idolatry sometimes seems like the right action, the right kind of worship, but it is done for the wrong God. My friends, I'm about to get real tricky here with you here in a minute. Because we live in a culture that believes if we do anything and we put religious jargon into it, then it must be done for God. We point to our sacrifices. We point to all the hours of our work. We say, don't you realize how much I've sacrificed? My friends, the Old Testament would say, there's no doubt how much you've sacrificed. The question is, is, did you sacrifice it to God? We're going to see how Israel does this. The process through which Israel made and worshipped the golden calf is eerily similar to the way that they were to make the tabernacle and to worship God. I put a little table in your notes. In Exodus 25, God commanded that a contribution of gold and silver be taken up for the creation of the tabernacle. Similarly, in Exodus 32, Aaron calls for a contribution of gold. It says this, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold and that they were in the ears, uh, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Can you hear? I tied this month. I contributed. I gave my gold. That's right. They took up a contribution. It even sounds like the contribution that God has told them to give. But it's done for an entirely different God. Next, the tabernacle would require Bezalel to hammer gold and fashion it into cherubim on the ark's mercy seat. We see that in Exodus 25, 18. Likewise, Aaron takes a hammer and he begins to fashion the gold, not into the image of a cherubim like God had commanded, but into the image of a cast metal iron calf. Same hammering. Same sweaty, back-breaking labor. Same effort, same muscles, the same kind of hammer strength that comes down. But is it done for God? No. It's done for an entirely different God. Once the golden calf was finished, the people proclaimed, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Sound familiar? Sounds just like Exodus 22, when the Lord himself said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. My friends, it's the same lyrics to the worship songs they've sang, but they're sung to a different God. When Aaron saw that the people's response to the golden calf was so great, here's what he said. He, he goes on to build an altar And he calls for a feast. He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now that building of an altar is interesting, but all he's doing is mimicking what Moses did back in Exodus 24.4. Moses built an altar to Yahweh. And so Aaron's thinking, well, my brother built an altar. Once this declaration was made, what did he do? He went and he built an altar. So now the declaration has been made, granted for a different God, but that must mean I need to build an altar. So he builds an altar. And then he calls a feast to Yahweh. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. You know what he's saying with this? Well, sure, you guys built a golden calf, and I'm going to religiously rescue you by calling this golden calf Yahweh, just to make sure we're kosher. 
I don't want you worshiping a different God, but I'll let you worship that God as long as you call it Yahweh. My friends, idols in the church are still idols. I don't care what name we put on it. It doesn't matter what we call it. It doesn't matter what name we give it. It doesn't matter if we say it's for the Lord. Christian idols are still idols. Finally, in uh, in verse 6, look at what they did. They rose up the next day, early the next day. We've seen them rise early the next day before. They rose up early the next day and offered what? The burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. They did the very same thing in Exodus 24.5 when Moses sent the people to burn offerings, whole burnt offerings and peace offerings. Go, sacrifice. They're making the very same sacrifices to the T. And then in the verse, at the end of verse 7, it says this, and the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. That's interesting. What happened in Exodus 24 and 25 when God, when they were finished ratifying the covenant? They sat down, they ate, and they drank, and they beheld God. Now these people are sitting down, eating, drinking, beholding their God, and then they rise up to play. It's similar to Yahweh worship, but it's different in that their worship of idolatry leads them into sin. This rise up to play is kind of a sexual connotation. They're, create, they're doing sexual immorality in mass. This is just a big, massive party. You can always snuff out the difference between true worship for God and worship for an idol, because God will never ask you to sin in service to Him. God will never ask you to lead a team and to be ungentle with them. God will never ask you to, to love people and then to turn around and be graceless with them. God never asks you to do that. True service, true worship for God is one that should be done without sin. So we can always tell the difference. It's a subtle difference that shows counterfeit worship. When we look at this dollar of counterfeit and trying to decide whether it's counterfeit or not, there's one telltale sign that our worship for God is not really truly worship for God, and that's when we can find sin in it. Now, to be sure, our sacrifices are mingled with imperfections, and we are not perfect in and of ourselves. But if we think that we must sin in order to do what God has told us to do, we have not been serving the right God. If we think that we must do this, this, and this, I just have to talk like this in order to get this done for God. It's not for God. The similarities indicate that Israel was replicating the covenant they had made with Yahweh, but this time they were covenanting with an idol. Just to paint the picture, this is is the same bride, Israel, and she's throwing the same wedding with the same decorations, the same venue, wearing the same dress, making the same vows, eating the same cake, but all for a new husband. Adultery is often the right kind of actions and the right kind of affection, but with the wrong man or woman. Somebody just whispered that. It's the right kind of action, right? The, the things that you hear an adulterer say are things that you would hope they would say about their world. They just make me feel good. 
They bring me all kinds of pleasure. I'm just attracted to them. I, you know, these are things that you would hope that the person would say about their spouse. So it's not that it's the, it's not that it's bad affection in and of itself. It's that it's misplaced affection, misplaced action. It's sinful because it's given to the wrong person. This should be a warning to us as modern Christians. We should never assume that we are in the clear because we do things that look right, seem right, sound right. We should never assume that just because we can stamp and label what we do as for God, that it is actually for God. The Old Testament is chalked full with all kinds of instances. 1 Kings 12 is one of them, where the Israelites make an idol, name it Yahweh, and believe they've not changed one little bit, that their worship is still to God. My friends, we must understand that far too often our idols are cloaked in religious jargon. Far too often we speak of sacrificing. Nobody doubts it is a sacrifice. Nobody doubts it is hard work. Nobody doubts it is a contribution. We speak of our acts of service. We speak of our religiosity. And we think that in and of itself is proof that we are serving God. My friends, far too often our acts of service and our sacrifices, because they are not purely focused on Yahweh, but they might be focused on ourselves, on our own glory, on our own reputation, on our own need for control. My friends, that is not acts of service for God. It is acts of service, but not to the right God. It is sacrificing, but it's not a sacrifice to God. My friends, unless we're willing to bring that kind of consideration into the body of Christ, into the church, there's really no distinction between us and the world. We just are a more religious-looking world. Do you realize that? The distinction between Christians and the world is ultimately that our sacrifices are devoted to God, that our acts of service are devoted to God, that our devotions and affections are devoted to God and God alone. It's not simply that we have affection, because the world has affection too. It's not simply that we make sacrifices, because the world makes sacrifices too. All kinds of sacrifices. The things people are willing to do to their bodies. That's a sacrifice. The things people are willing to do to their families, that's a sacrifice. The world perhaps makes bigger sacrifices than we do. The true distinction is who we make those sacrifices to. Who we serve. Whose name we in all honesty proclaim. Exodus 32 calls us to beware of the terrifying reality that many of us have been serving for years, but serving the wrong God. My friends, I have to do this every single Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. Do you realize how much I sacrifice throughout the week to make sure that this little 10 to 12 page paper gets written? Do you know how much service it takes to still go and see people and pray with people and be present and still come back and squeeze this thing for some truth? And yet if I'm doing it for my name, 
It's an, it's an idol sacrifice to me. It's an idol sacrifice to my glory. If I come up here and I preach this, they're just going to blow their minds how great of a preacher I am. They don't know what's going to happen. I am the best pastor they have ever had. This is my platform to success. Get ready, blogger world. Here I come. (laughs) If that's my attitude, it's not for God, is it? Beware. Thank you, Zach. Zach's my best. (laughs) And you, buddy. We've got to beware. Don't assume that what you're doing is for the Lord. Prove it. Vindicate it. Get down to the heart. Are you just naming a bunch of idols God and hoping that that's true service? Or are you actually serving the true God? Now, second, idolatry turns us away from God and God away from us. So it goes even further, right? What Israel did was not just a one-time act. There's an actual heart change and an actual shift in direction and devotion. In Acts 7, Stephen looks back on this event and he actually retells it. He says, our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, and thrust him aside. Now listen to this language. And in their hearts turned to Egypt... I didn't read that in Exodus 32. But Stephen looks back in Exodus 32 and says, what they were doing was they were reorienting their hearts back to Egypt, turning their hearts back to an old lover. Make for us gods who will go before us. Stephen says that was just an expression of their love and devotion for the ex-lover. And he goes on to say in verse 42, but God turned away. They turned from God, God turned from them. Now, if I were to tell you that physical affairs, marital affairs, are purely physical events, would anyone believe me in that? Physical affairs, like when a a man sleeps with someone who's not his wife or a woman who sleeps with someone who's not her husband, it's not pure physicality, is it? It's a heart affair. There's an emotional, there's a reason why we have one step before you get to a physical affair. There's an emotional affair that happens first. A heart shift that happens before the actual physicality of it. Idolatry is no different. We may not be bowing down to statues made of gold and silver. I've seen that in China. But there's still all kinds of us bowing down in our hearts. Idolatry is a heart affair. See, God took Israel out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in Israel. He defeated the serpent, Pharaoh, but their own hearts were still Pharaoh. When God redeems people, he doesn't just redeem you out of your sinful, uh, your sinful context or around the sinful crowds you used to run around or just away from your sinful actions. God redeems your heart. You know how many addicts I've met that have stopped boozing or stopped drugging or whatever it was, stopped their addictions only to trade one addiction for the other. That's not true redemption. Because redemption is a change of heart. 
It's not just a change of action. It's not just a change of motion. It's a change of heart. Unless there's a change of heart, the guy is still in slavery. Israel doesn't have a new heart, and therefore their idolatry proves that they're still in slavery. They're far away from Egypt now. Maybe not so far, but they're not going back. But in their hearts, they want to. And so in their hearts, they're still slaves. And then finally, idolatry demands an exchange. The psalmist described Israel's golden calf worship saying, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Idolatry at its heart is an exchange of one glory for a lesser glory. It's the same thing Adam and Eve did. They exchanged the glory of a relationship with God in the garden for the ability to be considered their own gods, to be like God. Now we we read this psalm in Psalm 106 and we hear those words, they exchanged the glory of God. Does that sound familiar to any other text in Scripture? So it's just like Romans 1, doesn't it? Which speaks of all humanity. Paul doesn't narrow it down to the Israelites in Romans 1. He's speaking of everyone when he says, claiming to be wise, they All humanity became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He goes on to say that God gave them up. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. My friends, your idolatry is not benign. It is malignant. Tumors can be benign. Idols cannot. Idolatry is malignant because it calls you to an exchange. Trade your God and take on another. Every single moment of the day, we're faced with this, right? Pleasure, entertainment. We're we're looking for security and satisfaction. Every day, at every turn, we have these little decisions. And there it is again, the ability to exchange. Idolatry is not just because I'm imperfect. Idolatry is because I don't understand the value of my God and therefore I'm willing to trade Him off. I'll let some garage sale picker take my heirloom. And give me pennies for it. That's the danger of idolatry. Cheapens God. And shows that you're willing to sell them off for peanuts. If I preach for my glory, I'm saying, I don't want anything eternal. (laughs) I just want something in the here and now. We always trade that which is better for that which is lesser when it comes to idolatry. Now, we got to get to Moses' mediation if we're going to get through this. Verses 7 through 10, God told Moses what was happening at the foot of the mountain. He told him that the people had corrupted themselves and that they had turned quickly out of the way that he had commanded. In his holy anger, God said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, 
that I may, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Uh, any of you ever been horse ranchers, farmers, Jerry McClung, your hands probably should be up. Um, uh, how many of you have ever had a dog that's real stubborn? You hated to give walks to because he's had to keep dragging the thing. Okay. How many of you have had kids that are a lot like that? Right. Okay. Stiff necked, right? Like this way, right? It's like, pulling and chugging and all that kind of thing, you know, um, and that's, that's what he's describing them. These are like unbroken, untamed animals that are refusing to go where their master is leading. He's virtually calling Israel a wild donkey that doesn't follow when the master tugs on the rope. It fights, stiff-necked. I'm not going that way. That's God's description From the moment they were rescued from Pharaoh's grasp, from the moment they saw God's grace, did it ever win them over to start walking in God's way? No. Murmur, grumbling, infighting, hatred, insurrection. Israel had never been in more danger than they were when God's wrath burned at Horeb. Pharaoh's wrath and chariots could be stopped by an almighty God. Now, here's the question. Who's going to stop the almighty God? Pharaoh's not a big concern because God's bigger, right? So God can stop Pharaoh. Pharaoh can't come through. But who's going to stop God? Surely Israel's doomed, right? It's over. God has said he's going to wipe them out. He's going to make Moses like Abraham. They're going to, he's going to become a great nation. Let's just start again. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Burn them like a desert bush in my holy fire. It's done, right? No one can stop God from doing this. But then in verse 11, here's what it says. But Moses implored the Lord his God. Our English translations are too weak there. The Hebrew actually says, Moses implored in the face of the Lord his God. Do you want to hear how, how clear that is? There is one person standing between the wrathful, holy God of all the universe and Israel. One person. He's standing in God's face saying, don't kill him, God. As a true mediator always does, he puts himself between the offended and the offender and pleads for their mercy. He could have easily said, sure, God, I like this idea, becoming like a whole new blessed Abraham. I hate these people too. But he doesn't do that. Whereas all Israel had forgotten God's wondrous works, Moses did not forget. And he used God's past works and his promises as a basis for his pleas for mercy. He recalls God's defeated foes. He says, God, you don't want the Egyptians to say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. God, don't let your defeated enemies start chuckling about this. But he goes even further to the promises. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and your servants to whom you swore by your own self. He stands boldly in the face of God. He says, God, do what you said. Don't kill them. You'll break your promise if you do. Now, listen, is, is God dependent on Moses? Is, is God 
really truly barred from doing what he wants to do because Moses, a man, is simply standing there, standing in his face? I mean, come on, this is like a grasshopper trying to stand in between me and a cake. (laughs) There's no hope here. But then we have a surprising twist. Chapter 32, verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, some people look at this and say, see, there's not a sovereign plan. See, God's not sovereign. He changed his mind. God changes his mind. I think they completely miss the point when they say that. The shocking truth is not that God changes his mind about destroying Israel, but that he does not change his mind about his promises. If I were God, I would say, you know, Moses, you're telling me to remember Abraham and Isaac. I changed my mind. He could easily do that. So the shocking thing isn't that he relents from destroying Israel. The shocking grace of it all is that he doesn't relent in keeping his promises. We shouldn't point to this and go, see, see, God, God's like us. No, he's not. Sure, God changes in little ways, relents in little ways, like not destroying Israel, not destroying the Ninevites when they repent, but he remains unchanging in his plan and promise for redemption. That is a great and amazing assurance. God is the unchanging God who is willing to redeem his people. In his grace, this holy, almighty God who broke Pharaoh, split seas in half, sent hell burning like fire down on the ground, lets a little, tiny, frail, 80-year-old desert shepherd stop him from pouring out his wrath. The impressive thing is not that Moses stood up to God. The impressive thing is that God let a finite man stand and hold back his wrath. God is literally saying, hold me back, Moses. I want to be held back. He doesn't need to be held back. He's not not, not like Moses can hold him back. Can you imagine holding back God from a fight? The only way to do so is if God wants to be held back. Because he's a gracious God. Now we're going to move quickly through the rest of the text. Moses' mediation was complete, incomplete in several ways. First, he could not bring people to confession and repentance. He comes down the mountain with the two tablets. He met Joshua. He sees the golden calf and his anger burned hot. That's what it says. And here's what he did. He took the tablets and he threw them down on the ground and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Just like all these illustrations of a wedding, they have broken the vow. It's like Moses taking off the wedding ring and tossing it. You've broken the covenant. You've disobeyed God. And then he does something interesting. He burns the golden calf. He ground it into pattern. He scattered it on the water. And then he makes makes them drink from it. Lots of people are like, what is that about? Right? Here's what I think it's about. The last time Moses threw something into water, it made bitter water sweet and drinkable, right? You remember that? All the way back at Mara, they had bitter waters, they couldn't drink it, and so Moses prayed and threw a branch into the waters and it made it sweet. I think what Moses is saying, Yahweh makes your bitter waters sweet, your idolatry makes sweet waters bitter. Have you ever thought about that? Our idolatry actually works against God. It doesn't serve God. It works against Him. It reverses what he's done. 
It turns all of his work on its head. That's what idolatry always does. Idolatry is always knocking things back down that God has set up. They've exchanged what was sweet and good and cool, just as in the middle of the desert, just a cool pool, right? Just this place where they could find refreshment. Now they've made it putrid and nasty because of their idolatry. And then Moses confronted Aaron. What did this people do to you? Please tell me they tortured you to make you bring such a great sin upon them. Aaron, you know, I could just see Aaron going, well, you know the people. (laughs) That they are set on evil. For they said to me, they said to me, Moses, they approached me. I didn't approach them. They came to me. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become to him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. You know, I just was taking their gold. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and whoops, out came the calf. Does this sound familiar to any other idolatry that we know? Doesn't it sound like Aaron is taking a defensive tactic out of Adam's playbook. It wasn't me, God, but the woman you gave to me gave me the apple and I, whoops, ate it. Moses can turn away the wrath of God from destroying the people, but he cannot make them repent. His mediation is limited in that way. Second, Moses' mediation is limited because he could not completely turn away condemnation. God wanted to completely wipe them out, right? Consume them up. And Moses, thanks to the gracious mediator that he was, made sure that Israel wouldn't be wiped off the map right then and there. But he could not turn away all condemnation. 3,000 people still died in a single day. God commands that everyone who is on his side strap on their swords and go to and from the gate through the camp and mow down these people. Now we think, how brutal. My friends, this is a sovereign God, and these people cheated on the sovereign God. He found another idol in his house. This is justice not brutality. Moses makes sure that all the wrath of God won't be poured out on Israel that day. But he can't hold back all of it. Can you imagine seeing 3,000 people dead like that on the desert floor, stabbed, ran through, all that? Just, just this nasty image of the consequences of sin. Third, Moses' mediation was limited because he could not bear the punishment for Israel. So Moses is watching this. There's still people dead. They're collecting bodies at this point, doing mass funerals. And he says to the people in verse 30, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Nobody has any clue what Moses means by that. Perhaps I can make atonement. The only time that we see atonement is when some something dies for someone else. That's, when you, you study that word atonement, it typically means sacrifice. So Moses says, you stay here, and I'm going to go try to make atonement. Well, how does he do that? He stands before God, and he confesses. Alas, this people, he has no defense for them. Alas, these people have committed a great sin. 
They have made for themselves gods of gold. What does he go to then? He makes an offer. But now if you will forgive their sin, please just forgive their sin. Lift up the guilt from them. But if you can't do that, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses, this isn't your fault. You weren't even there. The book that Moses is speaking of is the book of the living in which God's righteous people are enrolled. We see that in Psalm 69, verse 28. This is the book of the living, the book of the righteous. This is, God, this is the book in which God has written his blessed people's names in. And Moses is simply saying, God, if you are bent on killing them, mark my name out of the book. Kill me instead. Let them live. Knock me out of the book of the living if you have to. A beautiful mediator that is. God said, okay, done, right? No. God doesn't take him up on the offer because here's the thing. Moses is not the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. If his name's blotted out of the book of the living, it's because he himself is a sinner. He cannot be the substitutionary, innocent sacrifice that the people need. God even says this, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. They will bear their guilt. And he sends Moses away and tells him to lead them to a new place. And he says, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. I will judge them. And then at the end of the chapter, how does it end? And God sent a plague on his people. They wanted to be Egyptians? Great. God treats them like Egyptians. But Moses can't turn away the wrath. Moses can't turn away the plagues. Finally, Moses' mediation was limited because his mediation was momentary and not eternal. Psalm 106 verse 23 says that Moses, the chosen one, stood in the breach before God to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And yet, Moses one day died. Israel continued this, and they even replay this same event of the golden calf incident in 1 Kings chapter 12. If you ever want to see that the, they're doing the same thing again, 1 Kings chapter 12, God's wrath once again burned. Idolatry makes God angry, just like our wives or our husbands cheating on us makes us angry. It makes God angry. And here's what it says in Ezekiel 22. Here he is again on the mountain, flaming hot, angry, ready to consume the people in his wrath. And listen to this. This is scary stuff. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. Dot, dot, dot. But I found none. I looked for Moses. He held me back once. I looked to see if he'd hold me back again. He's not there. Because Moses isn't there, because Moses was dead, buried, God consumed them with the fire of his wrath. Ezekiel twenty-two thirty-one. Without a mediator, sinners must bear the guilt of their sin. Without a mediator, without someone to stand the breach and hold God back, 
We are like twigs in the fire. I love Exodus 32. Because it shows Israel's idolatry and Moses' mediation. And it is one of the best previews of the gospel I have ever seen in the Old Testament. Like Israel, we have exchanged the glory of God for, of the immortal God, of that for idols, for temporal things, material wealth, for reputations, for, for our name to be great and honored among people. We've traded what is really worthy for things that are worthless. And like Israel, we deserve to be consumed by God's wrath. And when God looked to see if he could find a man in the breach and he found none, God satisfied himself by sending one. He sent his son who stood in the breach. Son holding back his holy father. Son standing before the face of God. Doesn't just turn away his wrath, receives it. Burn me up. You got to burn something up. I know you're holy God. Burn me up. And he doesn't just turn away part of wrath. It doesn't, not like God just pours out some of it on him and then still thousands and thousands of people die in condemnation forever. No, because Jesus is a perfect mediator, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those in Christ Jesus. He doesn't turn away just some of the punishment. He turns it all away. There's some of us that are here. We believe, well, my eternity has been secured. And I know I'm not going to hell. But I just believe this is happening. Because I'm just a horrible person. God must be punishing me. My friends, if you're a Christian and you're in Christ. There is now no condemnation. It might be discipline. Which is totally different. I discipline my kids because I love them and I want to teach them the right way to go. But I don't condemn my kids when they do wrong. There is, just breathe that in and think about how sweet that is, that you don't have to stand like an Israelite at the foot of Mount Sinai wondering if you're going to be one of the 3,000 to be slain. That you can sit here today Knowing that for all eternity, at this moment, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, when you bury your husband, when you bury your wife, when you bury your kids, when you yourself make the march down to the graveyard, that you can proclaim with someone who has the faith in a perfect mediator, there is now therefore no condemnation on me. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who carries away the sins of the world. He did what Moses could not. His life was blotted out so that my name could be written in the book. His name was blotted out so that God's own hand could scratch my name in the book. Still more. Moses, the momentary mediator, died. He's dead. 
There was no one left to stand in the breach, and because there was no one to stand in the breach, God became angry and he punished his people. Jesus died, but when Jesus died, the breach was not abandoned because he rose again and became our eternal mediator. And now we don't say, there's no one found for the breach. God's looking and there's no one found. Now we say, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Breaches filled forever. Don't ever look for another mediator, God, because he's right there. No one else will ever need to stand in the breach on my behalf. For all eternity, Christ stands before the face of God, before the throne of God above as a strong and perfect plea. Upward I look, I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. We are idolaters, exchangers, those who have made transactions exchanging the glory of you, the immortal God the unchanging God, the only wise God, the all-loving God, the creator God, for things that are less. To have our own way, to have control, to have the glory that belongs to you alone so that people will revere us in the way they should be revering you so that we can be held in high honor and high esteem in ways, Lord, that is meant for you alone. And so we stand, Father, in and of ourselves, facing down the white-hot wrath in your face. But you have given a high priest. And not just given a high priest, you have given a perfect sacrifice. We have a priest who mediates for us for all eternity because he was the sacrifice who was burnt up on our behalf. Let us revel in the gospel, God, today. Let us see, Lord, whatever it is in our lives, God, you are the God who has given your son to stand in the breach. We are not alone. We do not face you on our own, Father. We are people who have a perfect mediator. And because of that, Father, we worship you for all eternity. And we ask, God, that you give us faith to trust in him and him alone. And that we don't think, Lord, that we have to bear the heat. Because he bore it for us. We pray this in the son of our one and only mediator. We pray this in the name of the one who came and died. We pray this in the name of the lamb of God who sits like a lamb that has been slain forever, but has risen in the glory of a lion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.